Our New Testament lesson is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And you can find that on page 151 in the New Testament in uh, your pew Bible. Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Thanks be to God. Let's keep that passage of God's word open as we turn to pray for his help together today. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people. Give us ears to hear your word, that we might be those who know and love the Lord Jesus and who grow in likeness of him. And we ask all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Who do you think you are is an American documentary series, an adaptation of the BBC series that bears the same name. The formula each week is the same. On each episode, we travel overseas or somewhere in America as we find somebody trying to locate their genealogy. It's great as we go back to the 1900s, the 1800s, or further back to the 1700s or 1600s. There's something fascinating about family trees. And all the more so in America, this great melting pot. Everybody is obsessed with knowing who they really are. Is it Irish or Dutch? Are you Scottish? 
or are you English? 400 years on from when the Mayflower landed, much of our past has been stripped away in our clothing, in our identification, customs, language, and food. But genealogies are big business. In fact, there's a group called the Blackstone Group. They're in a major investor, and they have recently done a deal for $4.7 billion as they've invested in Ancestry.com. But who do you think you are? Because that's Paul's question for us this morning as we continue in our sermon series from Ephesians, as we look together at verse 10 to 22. Because Paul wants us to see where we've come from. He wants us to marvel at all that we have in Christ. He wants us to see the free gift of grace. But if we are to marvel at the free gift of grace, we are going to have to understand the full horror of our former plight. And Paul began that explanation in verses 1 to 9 last week as he told us some painful home truths. We face that grim autopsy of humanity that like a corpse in the morgue, the whole of humanity is dead to God. The time of death on the, on the death certificate was the fall. The, the cause of death was when our parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, plunging their children, that's the whole of humanity, into eternal ruin and captivity to the world, the flesh, and the devil. The inescapable and unimaginable terror of eternal punishment that we deserve by nature. But in our deepest, darkest plight, we saw from the middle of nowhere like those car headlamps on a dark road, those incredible two words, but God, as we saw that the God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. The rescue could not have been more amazing. The Christian has undergone a revolution. We were dead and we've been raised, but raised not just to life, but raised to heaven itself, where we're seated this morning in Christ, in the throne room of glory. But Paul has a concern, and it's this, that somehow this extraordinary gospel of amazing grace might become a bit old hat. It might become a bit passe, that we might have become dulled to it, deadened to it, that somehow we might have developed a sense of entitlement to it, a sense that, to be honest, we deserved it, a sense of arrogance, that perhaps we are spiritually quite important, like spoilt little kids. And if that was a risk for the original readers in Ephesians, based in Ephesus in AD 67, it's all the more a danger, isn't it, for us in 2023 America? Because we live in an age of entitlements. This is a rights-based culture. And so it's very possible, if we're honest, that we have developed a sense that salvation was our prerogative. Rather like Catherine the Great, who announced that God will forgive me, sisomitie. 
That's his job. Well, this morning, Paul's cure for this disease of spiritual arrogance is brutal. His his cure is is a radical radiotherapy of pride. There's a health warning. Warning, some listeners may find the following material offensive because what Paul is going to do in this section is something of a demolition job on my pride as he takes a wrecking ball and dynamite to explode any arrogance, any arrogance we may feel. There are two things I want us to see. They're pretty obvious and basic, so I've not even put them on the sheets for notes, but here's the first. For once, we were excluded outsiders, verses 11 to 12. Paul says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. This congregation to whom Paul is writing, they were located in the city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, 1,200 miles from Jerusalem. They were not kosher. This is Gentile turf. And so twice in verse 11, and then in verse 12, Paul calls on them to remember who they once were, Gentiles. He calls on them to repent with gratitude. That word Gentiles literally means nations. Because when God chose Israel and summoned them to be his treasured people, that decision of God, that calling from God, that promise of God, opened a San Andreas fault line between Israel the chosen and the rest of the worlds. For the Jews, it was a serious case of us and them. And as the Jewish eighth grader studied geography, the only land that mattered was the land of promise. The only people group that mattered were the people of promise. And the great sign of identification that demarked out the chosen from the rest of the world was circumcision, the mark given to Abraham in Genesis 12. And so the Jews prided themselves that they were the circumcised and they despised the Gentiles with a form of abuse, the uncircumcision. The Jews saw the Gentiles as barbarians, feral, rabid scum, a filthy, vile people living in darkness. They looked at them much as we might look at the brutality of the Taliban in Afghanistan today, barbaric, medieval, back in the dark ages. And every morning a Jewish man would wake up and pray the burkot, hash akar, literally the prayer of the morning, and the prayer would go like this. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, that you have not made me Gentile. The Jews loathed the Gentiles. 
They engaged in an elaborate system of social distancing to keep away. They would literally cross the road to avoid them. And if, by accident, they came across them, there would be a system of decontamination when they got home to literally remove the pollution from their clothing. If you ever met one, which was highly unlikely, the nickname would be the dogs. Look, there's one of the dogs. They believed that God had created them, the Gentiles, to be fuel for the fires of hell. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, they conducted his funeral. It's as though he was dead. And they believed it was not even lawful to help a Gentile woman in labor give birth safely because that would just bring another wretched, filthy dog into the world. Paul wants us to see that that's who we once were. And he identifies in verse 11 and following a five-fold alienation. First, verse 11, we were separate from Christ. The title Christ here means Messiah, God's long-awaited, long-expected, anointed king, the one who would come from God to rule for God the promised deliverer, the one who would establish the kingdom, defeat our enemies, and bring his people home to the land of hope and glory. But all of the blessings were located in and through Messiah. Only through Christ, the Messiah, could we ever access the promises of God. But Paul's point is that he was not your Messiah We were Gentile outsiders. We had no claim on him. Soon after the death of the Queen, in a very powerful speech in the House of Commons, the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, made a powerful speech in honor of her. He said the world knew her as the Queen, but here in Britain and in her territories, we knew her as our Queen. The world admired her, were fascinated by her, perhaps had a picture of her or a mug with her on there, or they'd watch documentaries about her, but I don't know how to break it to you. Uh, She wasn't your queen. You had no claim on her. But very different for those in Australia or, or Canada or Britain, because we were within the orbit of her reign. And it's like that with the Christ. So as this Jesus arrives, he declared, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. And what did the sign above him at the cross read? But this is the king of the Jews. In the Old Testament were 324 promises about the Messiah. All of them addressed to the nation. Not one of them addressed to us. The serpent crusher of Genesis 3, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the shepherd king of Psalm 23, the Davidic king of Ezekiel 34, the ruling son of Psalm 2, they were promises for the Israelites, not us. And because we were alienated from Messiah, seconds, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The word commonwealth here is the Greek word from which we get citizenship or government or republic. Because the nation of Israel was a theocracy 
It was one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Founded at Mount Sinai, set apart from all the other nations. And the key difference was that they had in their possession the law of God. Through this law of God, he revealed his oracles, his wisdom, his justice and truth. The great boast of Israel was that they knew God's because it was to them and to them alone that he had given his words. But we were not part of that nation. We didn't have the law of God. And it wasn't as though we could become part of the nation by getting a green card or even a temporary visa. To become a Jew, you had to be of the family line of Israel, a descendant of Abraham. You couldn't just immigrate in through the border by paying an immigration lawyer to get you in. Israel was a closed country like North Korea or Iran today. There was no way in. And because we had no access to Messiah and therefore no access to the nation, third alienation, we were strangers, says Paul, to the covenants. Because in Exodus 24, as God ratified the covenant, he gave the people two things. The law of God that revealed his holiness and then the sacrificial system. As the law of God revealed the holiness of God, it drove them to the rescue of God through the sacrificial system where every year, once a year, at Yom Kippur, the annual day of atonements, as the high priest went into the most holy place with the blood of the sacrificed animal, atonement would be made as all the sins of all the people, whatever they were, were taken away as the scapegoat took those sins into a solitary place. Expiation, the removal of guilt. But because we had no access to the Messiah, we couldn't enter into the nation. And because we couldn't enter into the nation, we had no access to the covenant of promise or of rescue. There was no way for our sins to be remitted. There was no solution to our guilt. There was no forgiveness for our rebellion. There was no salvation. There was no pardon. There was no access to God's temple. There was no way into God's nation. There was no access to God's. And so where did it leave us? But in this fourth and final and devastating alienation, Paul says, we were without God's and without hope in the world. Literally, he says, you were godless and hopeless. L'Etranger is a novel written by the French existentialist, atheist writer, Albert Camus. It was published in 1942, and I had to study it at school. L'Etranger literally translates The Stranger in French. The book has been ranked by Le Monde as one of the most important books ever written in the last century. But it is the story of godlessness and of hopelessness. 
The central character, Meursault, doesn't believe in God. He's an existentialist. But because he's an existentialist, he's a nihilist. The two go together. There is no meaning in life. And so the only release to the absurd and the absurdity of life is death. The book centers around his murdering of a black Algerian, but he feels nothing. And the book ends as he opens the drawer and then pulls out the revolver and actually commits suicide himself. It's a perfectly logical thesis. <laughs> if there is no gods, let's be honest, there is no meaning. It's all absurd. What is the point? You may as well pull out the metaphorical revolver and suicide because life is dark and sobering and frightening and meaningless. And Paul says, this was us. But my question is, is this how we self-identify as we look back to our backstory? Spiritually speaking, says Paul, it was as if we were on the Titanic. We Gentiles were going down, but we had no access to the lifeboat of covenant promise. Is this our backstory? The Gentile then here, that's pretty much all of us, needs to get to the front and we need to hand you the microphone for the testimony, but the testimony, my testimony as a Gentile, needs to go like this. I was far off. I was a long way from God. I was a filthy, vile, Gentile dog. I was a writhing worm of a sinner, an enemy of God, a foreigner to his kingdom. And the promised Christ was not for me. I was the last person on earth who should have been saved. Yet, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a Gentile wretch like me. And in verse 13, that's Paul's point as he uses this vocabulary of far off and near. These were words that the Jews would have used in the first century to describe the difference between Jew and Gentile, the far-off filthy dogs and the nearby covenant people. And Paul has the audacity to announce that in the gospel of Jesus, we who were once far off in our filth and wretchedness have been brought near by the bloods of Christ. And the way that Paul wants us to understand this is through the architecture of the temple, which stood as a powerful symbol of the theology of which he is describing the gospel. The very heart of Jerusalem was the temple, the pride and joy of the nation of Israel, rather like the White House or Buckingham Palace, only on a much greater scale. But the architecture of the temple symbolized through its walled courtyards, ever-increasing separation. At the very heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where only the high priest could enter, only once a year, only after the most elaborate sacrifices for sin. The 60-foot curtain marked it off 
no entry on threat of death. The next courtyard from there was the court of the priests. You could only get into the court of the priests if you could claim that you descended from the tribe of Levi, that you were of the Levitical tribe of priests. The next courtyard, if you like, out from there was the court of Israel. Only circumcised male Jews were allowed to come into there. The next zone out was the court of the women. Only Jewish women were allowed to enter there. And then down 14 steps, outside of the whole of the temple complex was a perimeter area where trading was allowed into which Gentiles could enter. 14 steps down, but in front of them on a wall, a sign written in Latin and in Greek, which archaeologists discovered some years ago. The sign was a keep-out sign in both Greek and in Latin, and it read this, Let no one of any other nation come within the fence and barrier of the holy place. Whosoever will do so will be guilty and responsible for his own death. The sign was not so much trespassers will be prosecuted, but trespassers will be executed. Just imagine you're a Gentile as you arrive at the temple, desperate to be in on the promises of God, desperate to be in on the love of God, on the grace of God, the mercy of God. And you are confronted by that wall. Keep out. No entry. Danger of death. We're far off. There's no way in. And Paul in verse 13 takes us to those extraordinary words, but now. Two hinge words that echo the glorious words of verse 3, but God's. <clears throat> two words that divide history into two epochs and humanity into two groups as we move from despair to hope, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Had you been there in 1961 on the uh, 12th of August and the 13th of August, I think I've told you before my father was there, the, uh, the Berlin Wall went up. At first it was just a barbed wire fence, but soon it was built properly in concrete, 12 feet high, 4 feet wide. The communist governments of East Germany were getting concerned by the number of people who were crossing in order to get out of communist-controlled Eastern Germany. And so up went the Iron Curtain, a powerful and almost impregnable wall separating East from West. It stood for 28 long years. Over 200 were killed as they tried to cross. The ominous checkpoint Charlie, where you can still visit if you go. But then came Perestroika and Glasnost under Gorbachev, and that 
famous visit of President Reagan to Berlin in 1987 as he challenged Gorbachev to, quote, tear down the wall. Two or three years later, 1989, it was announced that the wall would come down. And then history was made on that extraordinary day, October the 3rd, 1990, when the wall came crashing down. German families, friends who had been separated by the Iron Curtain, now reunited. And Germany, once a great united nation, reborn, reunited together, the largest nation in Europe, a new nation of hope and glory. The dividing wall that Paul is talking about between Jew and Gentile is the Old Testament law. It contained 613 separate commandments which fenced Israel in and fenced the Gentiles out. At the death of Jesus on that lonely hill of Calvary, the law of God was placed onto him. And through his perfect law-keeping life, and then his substitutionary sin-bearing death, Jesus abolished the law by fulfilling it for us. How can the wall come down if the law stands? It's a great question. But the answer is because Jesus, in becoming a man and a Jewish man, acts as the perfect Israelites. He acts as perfect Israel. As the Messiah, the King, he, in his life and death, fulfills the law through his obedience and sacrifice so that the law is perfectly kept in him, so that God is satisfied with him, so that through his death, the dividing wall of Old Testament religion comes tearing down. And that word, tear down, is strong in the original. And I'm convinced that if Paul was teaching this this morning, or doing it in the Sunday school hour, he, he would have had that visual aid of the temple in verse 14. And we would have seen those precincts, the Holy of Holies, and then the Levitical courts, and then the Israel Jewish court, and then the court of the women, and then the court of the Gentiles. And there would have been a visual aid, as Paul showed us those lines of, of demarcation, of fencing out, and maybe then we would have moved to the next slide as those were all removed from the highlighter pen as we see that actually what has happened is we have come into a new status, far off, brought close. Only, only what God has done is even more remarkable than we think because it's not as if we have become Jewish. It's not as if we uh, Gentiles have been brought into Israel. The wall's coming down and we're allowed into the temple and into the holy place. It's not that the Jew has been given a, 
uh, 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 the, the Gentile has been given a green card or citizenship. It's not that the Gentile has become a Jew. It's actually that God has formed a new Israel, a new family, a new people. The equation is one, that's the Gentiles, plus the Jews, that's one. One plus one equals one. He's torn down the dividing wall, thereby creating in himself a new people. We've not become Jews. That was the great argument, wasn't it, of Paul in Galatia. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to become Jewish to access this because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of that stuff has been fulfilled. We don't enter into old Israel. We enter now into new Israel located in Christ. He is, if you like, the corpus the new body into which we are incorporated. And the results, says Paul, is peace. Not a feeling. I feel peace. Not a hope. Peace, man, peace. Not a temporary ceasefire peace, like the Russians observed over Christmas. Not a fragile peace deal, like the Good Friday peace deal in Northern Ireland, but real, genuine, stable, everlasting peace. And the word that really Paul is communicating is the old Hebrew word shalom, an extraordinary word that implies well-being, harmony, unity, wholeness, prosperity, welfare, and completion. This is what the world aches for. 20 million died in World War I. It was called the war to end all wars. But since then, the war in Korea has raged, and then Vietnam, and then in Iraq, and then in Afghanistan. Around the world right now are over 250 different conflicts. And the great dream of John Lennon is that one day the world would become one, as he asks us to imagine. It's why the League of Nations was formed after World War I, and it led to the United Nations and the Security Council. But this world can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Watch the evening news. Whether it's the Catholics and the Protestants on the Shanklin Road of Belfast or the Jew and the Palestinian on the Gaza Strip, within our own marriages and families and within our own culture, we can't bring this peace to bear. It eludes us. The great promise of the gospel is a new humanity in Christ. And it's rather like a triangle because this functions on two levels. For as we find peace with God, we find peace with one another. If you like, we're at the bottom end of the triangle. And as we move towards God's at the top end, we find that we are united together in peace. Or, or think of the, the cross as you look at the cross, 
Well, there's a vertical element, isn't there, as we, if you like, find unity and peace with God. But then that unity and peace with God enables us and empowers us to find that peace and unity with each other. As together we now find access to God. It's an amazing picture, isn't it, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, no longer strangers and aliens, fellow citizens with the saints in God's households. Verse 19, as the black is now united in Christ to the white, the Jew and the Muslim in Christ as they become Christian, the Democrat and the Republican Christian, the Christian vegan and the Christian meat eater, the northerner and the southerner, the Midwesterner and the southwesterner, the Alaskan with the Hawaiian, and the Californian with the Texan, and the Pennsylvanian with the New Yorker, the U.S. citizen and the foreigner, the asylum seeker and the illegal immigrants, the homeless with the oligarch, the lower class with the upper class, the Ivy League graduates with the school dropouts, the Christian CEO with the Christian factory floor worker, the homeless with the homeowner. Verse 19, no longer aliens and strangers, fellow citizens and saints with God in his households. Actually, this picture is extraordinary. One says, Paul, you were excluded from the temple. Now, he says... You are the temple. No longer foreigners and strangers, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household. The temple is Jesus, but in him, God inhabits us, the church. We are the temple of the living gods. But how is this peace to be maintained? Well, every nation has its foundation charter, I suppose, for Britain. Or England, it's Magna Carta Libertatum and uh, 1215 and all of that. For the US, it's the Constitution. For France, it's La République and the great uh, storming of the Bastille in 1789. But what about God's nation? How is this nation to maintain its peace? And the answer comes in verse 20 because... This new people, this new family, this new nation is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. It is at this temple we meet gods. It is in Christ we meet gods. But we meet God in Christ through his word, the gospel. This new humanity, this new nation, this new family, this new temple, is built on the word of God, the apostles and prophets, for it is built on Christ, the cornerstone. Only through this gospel is our unity maintained and preserved. Only through the word of God, through the apostles, the prophets, only through the gospel is our unity maintained and preserved. Verse 21, only through the gospel can this building grow as God indwells us by his Spirit. There's an application there for us then, isn't there? It's not that here at church there are all these different activities going on around the periphery 
And then somewhere over here is the preaching of the Word of God. No, no, the preaching of the Word of God has to be central to the life of this church or our unity will not be preserved and we will cease to be God's church. The picture is of a new people united in Christ, built on His Word. The temple in Jerusalem is long gone. But don't worry, God's temple is here. It's Christ. It's us, the church. It will be that you've been sleeping for the last uh, 30 minutes. I more than understand that. But before we finish then, let's just go to the one word summary. So nudge your neighbor if they are asleep. And there's, I suppose, the take-home summary, which actually comes back in verse 10. I deliberately left this out last week. Because Paul declares that we are his workmanship. The we there is not individual, it's plural, it's the church. And that word workmanship literally in the Greek means masterpiece. And the we is this new humanity, it is this new um, temple, it is the church of Jesus Christ. Look around the building, there's not much to see. The person next to you will have either diabetes, perhaps cancer or arthritis. There's nothing much to see. But says Paul, there's everything to see because we, Emmanuel Lydes, we, the church of Jesus Christ, we are his masterpiece. We are his priceless work of art. If you go to Manhattan and you head into the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you will find 30 paintings by Monet on display. But surely the most stunning of all is the water lilies. It's one of 250 separate panels which together comprise the extraordinary composition of the lake and the lilies at his house outside Paris. And if you walk up and you look at the little brush strokes, you'll see each and every one of them are there with incredible detail as the lights and the color and the contrast and the tone. But, but then you stand back and you look at the composition. It is extraordinary. It's worth a trip to Manhattan if you've never seen it. And then at the bottom right-hand side is the signature Monet. It's a masterpiece of the Impressionist painter, probably his finest work. You can go to New York and see it next week. It is a priceless work of art. Those individual brushstrokes together creating this incredible impression. And that's the Church of Christ. You and I are little brushstrokes, individual color, diverse in age and stage and background and story and gift set and mood and emotion. But together, Jew and Gentile, and together, all of us form this priceless work of art created in Christ to do good works. 
And in the rest of our letter, we're going to see that the good works we are to do are all to do with serving the people of God in unity so that together we might grow. And as I finish, it might just be worth me therefore asking you, is there anybody here that you'd rather not be here? Is there anyone within this church that you don't particularly want to be united with? Does he bother you, annoy you, or upset you? Does she wind you up the wrong way? Because if we've understood that the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down, the iron curtain of the law has gone, we see that the purpose of this salvation is not only peace with God's, on the vertical axis of the cross. It is shalom on the horizontal and the good works he has saved us to do are the good works of unity in diversity as we live as the masterpiece, the precious work of art of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So our prayer this morning, Father, is that we would indeed marvel at who we are as we look back to who we were. Forgive us our sin, wash us afresh, and enable us to live as your new, united, corporate people with the joy and the love that your Spirit brings us. Fill us with hope as we look to the future. Fill us with gratitude as we look to the past. And we ask all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.